You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome to Herd Tell. It is Wednesday, July the 13th, year of our Lord 2022. So glad you're with us today, giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. A lot to cover today. Uh, we're going to talk about news media specifically, how we cover the news. I know that's one of our taglines, but there's some really important numbers and data worldwide, not just the U.S. from Reuters, on how news is getting consumed. We're going to talk specifically about American News Kickoff Show here in just a minute. Uh, one of our best guests that we have on regularly, James Chernowski, he talks big tech, he talks regulation, he talks new media, social media, these sorts of things. Uh, we're going to bring him back on because last time we talked to him, we were talking about Elon Musk and Twitter. And now that that has gone to a new stage of acrimony, we're going to have him back on. We're going to talk about that. Elon Musk, Twitter, some good information you need to know because it's going to get really loud in social media and in the court system, but it's not the normal court system. He's going to explain that to us in detail. Also talk a little bit about some of the government regulation stuff that goes into those things. James Chernowski is our guest on the program today. Also, we're going to touch in the UK, the Tory leadership race. Uh, we've got our eight nominees that will be going through the process. We'll detail those in a little bit, and we'll end the show on our good, uplifting segment. We always try to end on a good note. Um, Forgotten Harvest, a meal program up in Detroit, standing the gap for kids who rely on school lunches during the summertime. We will cover that as well. But first, let's start with this piece in Axios. You know our tagline here, turn down the noise of the news cycle. Turns out we're not the only ones doing that. This is from Axios. Uh, the headline, news engagement plummets as Americans tune out. As always, this will be linked in the show notes. Make sure you read the piece in its entirety. But I want to bring up some of the data points they found in here. The big picture, according to Axios, the level of news consumption in 2021 took a nosedive following historic highs in 2020. Now, of course, that was an election year. This isn't. So that usually happens. But this is notable for a couple of reasons. The war in Ukraine, this is from Axios, a series of deadly mass shootings, the January 6 hearings in the Supreme Court's revocation of abortion rights and the leak, which is one of the biggest news stories in a long time, haven't been able to capture the same level of attention spurred by the onset of the pandemic in the 2020 election. Engagement with news content across all platforms declined significantly for the first half of 2022. 
Cable viewerships among the three major cable news works, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, is on average down 19% in prime time for the first half of this year compared to the first half of 2021. Those losses skew heavily towards CNN and MSNBC, which are down 47 to 33% respectively. Fox's ratings actually ticked up about 12% in that six-month span, but that is a slowing of growth even for them. News app sessions for the top 12 mainstream most trafficked publishers dropped 16%. In the first half of 2022, website visits for the top five news websites by unique visits dropped by 18%. These are significant numbers, folks. Engagement on social media. Listen to this. With news articles cratered over the past six months, dropping 50% since the first half of last year. Despite more articles being published, according to the data from NewsWhip, engagement is measured by the interactions with the articles, which indicates likes, comments, and shares. The sheer drop off of social media engagement with the news was likely influenced by Facebook's de-emphasizing news in the news feed as it moves to a news consumption to the news tab. However, this is from Axios, in some cases, engagement has fallen below pre-pandemic levels. A news diet, quote unquote, whiplash among the top 12 news apps sessions in the first half of 2022 are down 13% compared with the first half of 2019. Engagement with those news Sites or interactions are down a whopping 42% compared to the first half of 2019. The pre-pandemic comparisons for cable news viewership also shows a drop, with numbers for those three major cable networks in prime time down 15% in the first half compared to the first half of 2019. Fox News is up slightly, but MSNBC and CNN are down 16% for MSNBC and 35% for CNN which also explains why CNN just cleaned house in their management and executives. The interest in the presidency, listen to this bit. The interest in the presidency has declined considerably under President Biden compared to his predecessor, fueling some engagement declines. Trump and Biden have generated the same level of Google searches since Biden took office and President Trump generated seven times more than President Obama, although that's a little bit of an unfair comparison because technology and social media and smartphones and things like that have changed since the beginning of Obama's presidency. The big picture is this. Survey data shows Americans have grown weary amid what feels like a never-ending cycle of bad news. The percentage of respondents in the Reuters Institute, that's a study we're going to cover in our next segment. Don't go anywhere. That's a worldwide report. They sometimes, folks that sometimes or often actively avoid the news is up to 42% in 22. That's up from 38% in 2017. Interest in the news amongst those surveyed in the U.S. fell 12 percentage points from 55% last year to 43% in 2022. We will link to all this. I know that's numbers heavy, but I want to go through that data to prove this point. And the headline was actually accurate here. Folks are tired of the news. They're tuning it out. And when they tune it in, they're going to specify things. Interestingly enough, one of the sales pitches for President Biden to become president was you aren't going to hear about him on the news every day like Trump. And that's not entirely true because the president's going to be heard about. But what that Google search data that we said, how the searches are almost equal, you know what that tells you? The political people are still the political people. They just switched sides of the net and kept playing on the same tennis court. But everybody else, the casual news viewer, the average American, whatever that might mean, but the average news consumer, they're tuning in to less and less news, especially traditional media broadcast news and even the social media stuff that they usually consume they're tuning out of. People are worn out. 
the business model from the pandemic and the Trump years and things like election seasons mean folks that run media companies want those same numbers all the time because those are the high watermarks. So they tailor their coverage to try to replicate that year around. But the problem is, and we've got the data now, they're burning out the audience. People don't want 24 hours of crisis and bad news. It's one of the reasons we started doing Herd Tell. We wanted to turn down the noise of the news and get back to actual information. If these news companies want to continue to be in business, they may want to look at that model and do it themselves because people are voting with their clicks and their eyeballs and their feet, and they don't want bad news 24-7. More Herd Tell right after this. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at back to her tell let's continue to talk about media coverage for just a second part of that axios stories referenced uh the reuters institute for politics worldwide report not just america the entire world on how they're uh taking in news a couple interesting things in the data that i want to point out to you um one of them is access point to news now why is this important a access point how you come to a news story um, between the la- between 2017 and 2022, uh, went from 32% got direct access to website and apps, and 23% got their direct initial access through social media. That number has almost inverted. 28% now get it through social media first, and only 23% get it through direct access. Why is that important? That means the stories that go viral, that trend, um, people who go through their following networks to get news stories. That's what's happening there. More and more people are getting it through their social media and not through the direct site. And that's very important in a lot of different ways. Another interesting uh, tidbit, Facebook, is it losing its dominance? It sure looks like it. Um, this is broken down in a variety of ways, but Facebook has been flat and actually declined for a number of people. The average uh, market for people's access to news. It's followed by WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, Facebook Messenger, and then Twitter, Snapchat, and some other uh, things after that. Proportions that used each social network for news in the last week, average of 12 markets. This goes back 10 years. So over the last 10 years, Facebook has dropped about six points. YouTube has gone up three points. WhatsApp has gone up almost double to 15% from 7%. Uh, Twitter and Instagram have gone up. Instagram has gone from 2% to 12%, a very large jump. And then there's some others as well. Here's one that I really wanted to point out to you, though. This is broken down by country. Proportion who think they see too much news 
on each network in the UK. Uh, the UK believes that they see too much news on Facebook by 21% to 55% that think it's about right. Uh, Twitter, 11% think it's too much news. 73% think it's about right. Uh, on too much news for Instagram, 8%, 66% say it's about right. And for TikTok, 9% and 65% says it's about right. By country, it goes like this. Two uh, markets saying there's too much news in their social media. India, 23%. Austria, 23%. South Africa, South Korea. The U.S., down at 22%. The U.K. at 21%. Australia, at 20%. They think there's too much news in their social media. One more uh, interesting tidbit from this data. It's a big data sheet. It's a 130-some page PDF. We will link to it. Please read the whole thing. Portions who used a podcast in the last month in selected countries and markets. Now, of course, we're going to be a little biased here because we're a podcast on top of being a radio show and a YouTube show. That's one of the metrics I have. I can look at the different countries and look at us. Of course, we're U.S. heavy, but Canada, the U.K., Ireland, my one buddy in Costa Rica. I see you, Bobby Cam. Good to see you. Um, Ireland, 46%. Sweden, 44%. Norway, 42%. Spain, 41%. U.S., 37%. Canada, 36. That's a huge increase in Canada, Switzerland, Argentina, Singapore, Australia, Denmark, Austria, Finland, and the Netherlands are all in the low 30s. Belgium, Italy, France, Germany, Japan, and the UK down in the high to mid 20s. Worldwide, the average number is 34% access to podcasts in the last month, up three points compared with 2021. Podcast is on the rise. YouTube is on the rise. Social media is on the rise. Traditional media continues to decline. And even new media like Facebook flattened and starting to slide off. Very interesting data points on how you get your news. We will link to this piece. Please read the whole thing. More Hertel right after. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, when we have news and concerns and questions about big tech, this is who we go to. If you've got concerns about the interwebs, this is who we go to. If you have all kinds of questions about the gobbledygook doublespeak about internet regulation that our Congress is foisting upon us, this is who we go to. James Ranowski, so great to have you back on the program, buddy. James, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Is there anything interesting going on in the big tech social media realm that we should maybe talk about? <laughs> I mean, there's always something going on, right? But I think the dominating news of the past few days now has been uh, with Elon Musk calling off the, the Twitter acquisition deal officially. Uh, that was something that we both have been monitoring and talking about quite extensively uh, since it was announced back in April. And it took measuring into uh, its next phase with Elon Musk terminating that uh, acquisition agreement. And now they are going to get into a very unfriendly, uh, nasty court battle. <laughs> so we'll have to see what happens uh, in this next phase of Elon v. Twitter. But it's it's definitely been a wild ride, to say the least. 
Now, we actually talked about this when it first happened. I was being facetious there because I, I specifically brought you on because last time we talked, well, this is what we talked about. And we talked about, like, is this a done deal? Is it not a done deal? And we talked about some of the twists and turns that have gone on. Now it is a done deal. Um, my my read on this, let's just work backwards. Let's start with where we're at, and then we'll, we'll review a little bit. My, my read on this and from talking to some of our lawyer friends is like, look, uh, this this is just the buyout with some fancy lawyering on top of it. They're going to go to court. They're going to pre-impose sometime before it goes to discovery, though. They're going to sit down. They're going to come up with a number. It's going to be a lot less than $1 billion. And in a couple of weeks when the heat's off, this will all get settled. That kind of feels like where this is going, right? Yeah, I think that that would be the logical path that things should take. But with Elon, there's always that added factor of you just don't know what he's what exactly he's thinking about there. But you're not wrong. Like what's going to happen next is that this is going to get handled by what is known as the Chancery Court system in Delaware. That is not your typical court system. It is one that is specialized in dealing with matters uh, that have to deal with business uh, related issues. Um, so the good news there is that we'll actually have a pretty good idea. So what's going to happen from the Chancery Court in a matter of months, not like a normal court proceeding, which could take well over a year uh, and then some. So this should be a little bit more speedy than uh, what we're normally used to with other kinds of court trials here. But yeah, one would think that basically <clears throat> because the, the incentive is not to go forward with court proceedings as much as humanly possible. It gets very expensive for everybody. Uh, so one would like to think that they're going to sit down and hammer out a deal uh, that probably readjusts the value of what Twitter is going to get bought at. Uh, but again, it remains to be seen. It, we have to see how Twitter's board feels about it uh, in terms of how their willingness is to actually budge off the number that Elon originally went with. And we have to see what Elon's willing to do. Is he truly just trying to walk away and salvage any kind of money that he you know, doesn't have to otherwise pay? Or is he is he trying to do it for the purpose of lowering the price? Um, you know, there are different implications that are going to happen here. Uh, I know that when we've talked about this, the fee for breaking off and calling off the merger was a billion dollars. But the reality is, is that it's far larger than that because Twitter is going to sue. There's losses. There's shareholder lawsuits. This is not just a simple billion dollar thing for Elon Musk. It's a lot bigger than that. So all indications would point towards this coming to some kind of resolution. Yeah, and this is exactly why we have you on because let's let's make sure we got everybody on the same page here. A lot of po- folks probably just heard Chancery Court for the first time. Uh, business, especially big business, and this is bigger than big business. When you start talking multi-billion dollar mergers, acquisitions, hostile takeovers, this is a whole different level of business. It's a whole different level of regulation. Just explain to folks because a lot of folks, they're not going to be familiar with that, and that's why we have you on. You, you explain this stuff. Just break down what the Chancellor Court does because that's very, very different than like civil litigation or even like we, we've seen a lot of stuff like even with Elon Musk where the SEC takes him to court uh, over sorting things with stock manipulation, things like that. This is a yeah. whole different beast. No, you're absolutely right. It's a completely different beast than your traditional court. Because the Chancery Court in Delaware, which is a fun fact for your listeners, uh, Delaware is the most incorporated state in the entire country. Uh, Every single business that usually wants to get incorporated does so in the state of Delaware, in part because of this unique uh, legal system that they have working there. But basically what ends up happening here is that basically Delaware has its own separate court system that deals with business matters. And because that is how they are structured, they are specialized in dealing with it. 
And that means that they can get it done faster. We can get to resolutions faster. And it's actually something that businesses like on either side of the aisle, because it means that their litigation costs are lower to figure out what's going to happen. Uh, there's, there's, there's a higher degree of certainty because these uh, judges and lawyers are all going to be very intimately familiar with business law and the administration and adjudication of that law in the court. Um, so there's a lot of clarity that would be there in the state of Delaware, as opposed to other uh, judicial, uh, other judicial sectors where it might not necessarily have that kind of technical expertise. So Delaware is definitely in a unique position, and that's the purpose of this court. Yeah, uh, James Janowski joining us now. Here's that's the legal side and the technical side and the business side. But what happened online was this became a, another culture war thing. Uh, I think it was bizarrely so. I think this was really slamming a round peg into a square hole. However, how do we evaluate that now? Because now this, you know, Elon's never going to be quiet online. So he's always going to be out there. However, this chancellor court thing, this is a pretty much set process. Nobody's going, they're not going to get intimidated by anybody. They don't care what Twitter says about anything. They're just going to plow ahead and do their business. Does this kind of tap down? Because I notice, usually I say anything about Elon Musk, my inbox fills up real, real fast. Boy, them folks were quiet this weekend. They they didn't really want to talk to me. I don't know if that's because I got video of me being right and them wrong. But I'm just saying, we, they got kind of quiet. Do you think the culture aspect of this maybe tones down a little bit, at least until Elon Musk says something else? Because it sure seemed like the whole Twitter thing got hijacked for the moment instead of what it was actually going on, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think that you bring up an interesting point, right? Because I think when Elon, you know, originally announced that he wanted to buy Twitter, a lot of people were very charged in their emotions, if you will, uh, in terms of how they felt about this this announcement one way or the other. Um, If you ask conservatives, they thought that it would be a huge boon for free speech. And if you ask liberals, you think that, you know, Twitter would get turned into parlor or 4chan or worse. (laughs) And the reality is, is that we'll never know as of right now, because Elon is not going through with purchasing Twitter as of yet until we have a decision on the legal side of this. And I think that, you know, culturally, I think people are starting to come to the reality that it was never as black and white as they thought it was going to be. I think that, you know, it became increasingly apparent that, you know, Elon during the period of when they announced the deal to this latest development was more or less armchair CEO no more or less than any other internet tiger on the keyboard, right? I think that anybody can pontificate about all the problems that you have on any of these platforms, but it's another thing to be the guy who has to sit in the actual CEO chair and, and figure out how you're going to address the very real problems that these platforms are facing. Yeah, I put it on on uh, my Twitter too. I was like, look, even if Elon buys them, it's not Elon Musk that's going to set these policies. It's the it takes an army of engineers to make a social media site run. There's there's technical limitations on this. It's not just I know everybody wants to go to you know it's bias and their shadow ban. There may be some of that. A lot of this stuff is just baked in technical stuff that a lot of us just don't understand. Even if, like they were talking about, they'll release the algorithm. We can release it. Nobody's going to be able to read it. <laughs> like, I, I got really tickled at that. I was like, you, you can't read the algorithm. You have no idea what that stuff means. A lot of this stuff is technical and baked in. And then we want to put what we think is going on culturally on top of it. And it kind of gives us with an incomplete picture. And I think a lot of us, I'm guilty of it too sometimes. I'll put myself, we end up looking silly when we probably should have took a step back and just let it breathe. Yeah, I think I think when we're especially when we're looking at like algorithms and anything of that nature, we always have to I always try to express a certain degree of skepticism because 
I, I think that transparency is a great tool. It's an important tool that can certainly help in the process. But transparency for the sake of transparency is, is also something that can be detrimental to a service too, because there are plenty of nefarious actors that want to go and, you know, play with the system and figure out what works and what doesn't work. So that way they can go and do what they want to do and use the platform for otherwise not ideal purposes, right? So I think that, you know, it sounds nice in theory to talk about algorithm transparency and some of these other proposals out there. But again, when the rubber hits the road, we have to actually have, you know, solutions and policies that are grounded in reality that can be tested and, and, adju and adjusted on the background. And I, go, I think on average, when we're talking about this, no matter how you feel about the platforms, there's this default assumption that there's the shadow banning, any of that stuff that you've highlighted. Sometimes it's just a simple mistake. Maybe the algorithm over indexes for something. I mean, this is not perfect. Uh, algorithms are only as good as the data that's getting fed into them. And they're managed by humans who are definitely imperfect. They're not angels, last I checked. So I think that it presents a whole different can of worms that people aren't necessarily always thinking about. So we always have to be careful about thinking about trying to put like hard law restrictions on how we're going to operate any of these, uh, you know, very malleable internet services, because uh, if you go down that route, people will certainly, I think, end up being in a worse off situation. Yeah. James Janowski, he's so good on this stuff. We come back. There's other stuff going on in the tech news. We're going to ask him about it. He's writing about it, doing a lot of media lately. He's a busy guy. We're thrilled to have him back on Herdtail. More with James Janowski, our tech friend, right after this. back to herd tell he is our tech expert big tech expert regulation expert love having him on good information james ranowski uh james there's other stuff going on the elon musk stuff one, one of the things i highlighted too is because it's kind of been a distraction from some really important stuff going on uh let's start with crypto take it from this angle it's had a real rough time in the headlines it's having a rough time in the markets for people that aren't into crypto, because let's admit it, there's a little bit of a cultish, hey, I'm in it and you're not and I'm cool. And there's a, there's a lot of that involved in it. The average person, though, that just kind of pays attention to tech and business and politics, though, what part of that story should they pay attention to? Because the headlines look really bad. I'm sure that it'll bounce back at some point. The average person that consumes politics, though, what should they be paying attention to and what's noise that they should turn down when it comes to crypto right now? Yeah, I think that crypto, for one reason or another, is the hot topic. Uh, when you're not too busy thinking about big tech, a lot of countries and individuals are thinking about crypto and thinking about uh, how it's being utilized in different fashions, uh, particularly at the SEC. We've seen Chairman Gensler try to uh, ramp up his enforcement. And I'd say, like, if you're a consumer, the big thing that you should care about is how is this industry going to look moving forward? And that is shaped by how the government decides to treat it. And so far underneath the Biden administration, it's not been a very friendly relationship. Uh, like I said, Chairman Gensler over the SEC is being extremely big on enforcement against crypto, um, trying to treat every single cryptocurrency 
like a security as opposed to a commodity or a currency. In my opinion, when you're looking at cryptocurrencies, there's a variable use factor there because it depends on the user. Some people, they do look at it as a security. They see the upward you know, trajectory of Bitcoin and they're like, yeah, I want to hold on to it. Other people, especially the, the cultish originals that, that you're referencing, that, that's, that was not why they got into it. Uh, so I think that you need a lot of nuance and a lot of understanding. And this administration is anything but, uh, you know, con- cognizant about what exactly crypto is in terms of how to treat it or or how to go and handle it. And we've seen that throughout various pieces of legislation. So if you're a consumer, I care about wanting to make sure that we actually let this thing foster and grow in a good environment while having reasonable uh, expectations of protection for consumers. That's that's the whole point of regulation, but not crushing the industry. Right. Uh, This is actually really important to a lot of Americans. A lot of millennials actually own crypto. A lot of Gen Z own crypto. A lot of minorities own crypto. So there's a lot of people who stand to gain if we go and have a light touch approach, similar to what we saw when we had a light touch approach to the Internet that resulted in countless amounts of growth to the United States and really put us to be a leader. Right. So that's what we want to see moving forward. If you're a consumer, that's what I would want to see. Now, I've been super critical of crypto. I don't I don't partake because I don't understand. I'm just honest. I've got friends that really know this stuff who have tried to explain it to me, and I just I can't get my head around it. So I'll just put my I'm going to defend crypto here for just a second, though. Tell me if this if this works. I think what happened, if you have an emergency, emergent technology, you and me, we're we're free market guys, we're capitalistic guys, we want freedom for people. So we understand for new technology, a natural development is the usually the most healthy way for something to come out. This kind of reminds me, I think, of the dot-com stuff, where when the internet first came out, it got really top-heavy. You had the bubble. The bubble collapsed. But then after that, it developed into what it became. And then you had social media. And then you had the smartphones and the iPhones. People forget iPhones aren't that old. They're only We've only had them 15 years. After that initial top-heavy collapse is when the internet really became what the internet was going to be. I could see that being kind of the pattern with crypto, where it's like, okay, a lot of the untoward stuff's kind of working itself out of the system. We're going to have this collapse, and then it's going to kind of get back to whatever it's going to be in the future. Is that a fair comparison, do you think? Maybe that folks, are, maybe we're just a couple of years ahead of the game here, and this is still yet to play out where it's going to be. I just want to be fair to crypto because I do bash it, but I could <laughs> see it taking that path, and that would actually be a healthier thing down the road. Yeah, I think I think it's not unfair to suggest it, right? Because typically when we're thinking about crypto and blockchain technologies. This is all part of the next generation of the the interwebs, right? Web 3.0 includes blockchain and crypto and digital assets more broadly speaking, because this is all part of the underpinnings of how this can work. um, Because these these digital assets can serve as property rights on the internet, uh, which I think are pretty important more broadly speaking. That being said, you know, we're in the early iterations of a lot of it, which means that a lot of it's not going to be perfect. Uh, we saw that happen with some stable coins, the, the hot thing that Congress might have an interest in trying to regulate uh, with this, you know, combination of Terra Luna, where because the coin was backed in a particular fashion and that backing completely bottomed out, it completely undermined the stable coin itself. So I think that, you know, it's it's a matter of trying to figure out where the vulnerabilities are, where are the kinks, and building up that user trust so that way when you do get you know Web 2.0 and that build out that we saw that led to the rise of social media and all that for the Web 3 equivalents, 
you know, we can actually have that happen a little bit more smoothly, but you're always going to have these bumps in the road. They think these things are to be expected. The market is not a kind and forgiving place. People lost their shirts. I mean, I own Ethereum. I, I own Dogecoin just for LOL purposes, and I've lost my shirt on it. But I also hold on to it for the long haul. I'm not in desperate need of that money right now either. So I always, at least when I'm talking to people about it, always urge them to take a long you know, view on this in general and try to hold on to everything because it is going to bounce back. It'll come back. It's more matters to what what exactly does the structure of, of Web 3.0 and all these things that support it look like in that next iteration. Uh, and that'll come as, as technology develops and use cases develop now, all that's still very, you know, young right now. Think about some of the use cases right now that we have, like, let's say with NFTs, right? One of the early use cases right now is actually with music and artists. That's a little niche. Uh, and it's another way of trying to break down current systems right now where you could go and do through Spotify or something else as opposed to a traditional record label. But that's going to take a long time and a lot of patience. So, like, it is going to happen, but it's it's a little bit more gradual than I think people realize. It's more of the unseen uh, market enhancements than, you know, these bold, dynamic, massive scales of innovation that we might be used to over years past. Yeah, because, like, people didn't see the iPhone coming, but, like, there was tech people that were like, oh, yeah, this is coming. But the public, it was like, oh, my God, this came out of nowhere. Like, no, it didn't. I think that's kind of the stage we're at right now. Uh, James, Janowski, I want to ask you this before we got to let you go, though. You were on Fox 5, our friends over in D.C. on the TV. Um, you d- you had a great comment, and I want to expound on a little bit about how tycoons are power players in politics. We're going to link to it. It's up on his Young Voices page. You can watch the segment in its entirety. We already talked about Elon Musk. Um, culture and politics and business all combined right there. We just saw it for months on end, right? Culture and politics combining. You got the Peter Thiels of the world out there fielding candidates like J.D. Vance, $10 million bankroll up front for that. Silicon Valley for the Democratic Party is now the most important fundraising place they have as far as geography goes. This is just the new reality that when you have a lot of people with a lot of money, they're going to find places to put that money. And a lot of them want to go to politics and have they want to be players. Um, just talk about that for a minute, because this is a big shift because it used to be the power players in politics was either generational wealth or the captains of industry type. Well, the new captains of industry type are in tech and they're in speculation and they're in these things, but that also changes what they want policy wise and what they expect from government, doesn't it? Yeah. So I I think that you raise an excellent point there. Uh, political fundraising and the ability to get things that you particularly might want as an industry or as an individual uh, past is certainly not unsurprising to your ability to have a lot of wealth. Uh, With Web 2.0 and the rise of the internet age, we saw a lot of companies amass a lot of wealth and use that towards donating to get uh, politicians that were more amenable to their positions on a wide variety of issues. And we're starting to see the same thing happen um, here too, even with Web 3.0 and some of these other ones, uh, it's not any surprise that Andreessen Horowitz and A16Z has played a pretty big role in trying to go and shape how Web 3.0 policy might look on the federal level over the coming years. And they actually have a lot of money. You're talking about billions of dollars that he has invested across many funds to go and, and develop the Web 3.0 space. So there's no surprise that we're seeing a shifting of the tides here. And the reality is, is that as our economy shifts away from being more offline to more online, that means that the power brokers that 
play in politics are going to shift accordingly for better or worse. There, there are some, we'll say interesting personalities online that might throw some interesting wrenches into what this looks like. And I'll give a good example where uh, you have Sam Berkman Freed going and forming his own pack to try to have, uh, you know, more the most crypto friendly politicians get elected to Congress. He did a horrible job his first time around with uh, picking and supporting candidates. But as this becomes more you know, institutionalized, I imagine that we'll continue to see this get built out and more professional in terms of being able to vet and educate and all that, because that's the big problem that we have right now. And as these industries grow, then that need to educate is going to be that much more important. I think too, and and you, we've talked about this in other formats before. The other thing about these tech guys and the new money that's coming in, like Peter Thiel, I've got all kinds of issues with him personally and politically, but he's a good example of it. This new rise in the power players, they're not traditionally heterodox. Um, they are different. They're not really falling into the traditional, you know, liberal, conservative, progressive, right? They don't fit those boxes quite as neatly. I think we learned that with the Elon Musk things. We're like, well, he says this, this sounds more conservative and this sounds really progressive. And then this sounds really libertarian. I think that's something that's going to have to change is people's going to have to change their filters a little bit when it comes to these folks. They've got niche issues. They have broad global perspectives in a lot of reasons. This is going to be a very different animal than their traditional left-right dynamic, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But I think that's more of a symptom of the reality of politics as it currently stands. There's a lot of I think it's impossible to miss the amount of frustration there is uh, with Washington. I mean, uh, our organization is doing an entire campaign about Washington waste and how people are paying more to get less because this administration that's currently in power is focused on doing all kinds of radical things that actually aren't what people want. Like they're, they, they are heterodox on average. And when you have someone like Elon Musk or, or uh, Peter Thiel, who are heterodox thinkers and don't necessarily line up cleanly R or D, it puts you in a weird position because now it means that you actually have to think a little bit more than you might have otherwise had to, which could be a good thing, right? Like I, I would like to think that I would want to encourage not just politicians, but voters to become more heterodox in their thinking in general. I think that there's actually a lot of benefit to that in terms of just wanting to develop your, your thoughts and your beliefs and your core values. Um, it's not a pain. It's not a bad thing in my view, but I think like anything else, it's, there's certainly is a cautionary tale to be had there because when you're putting money behind those thoughts, that certainly I think influences how that might manifest in the form of legislation or political activity. Right. So that's always something that you have to keep in the back of your mind. These heterodox thinkers, it's one thing to have them when you're outside the game. But once you're in the game, I think that that fundamentally shifts how those ideas that you might have had while outside the box get applied inside the box. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're going to see it actually test bedded here because it looks like some of these candidates might get through. James Arnowski, he does outstanding work. We love having him on. He's a regular here on Hertel. But you're a busy guy. You got a lot of irons in the fire, buddy. So until we get you back again, which is going to be at least a couple of weeks because you're getting ready to hit the road, let folks know where you're working, what you're working on, where they follow you on social media until they see you again next time we have you on Hertel. Yeah, it's, it's a very busy slate coming up. I'll be out in uh, in Las Vegas this upcoming week for Freedom Fest to go and do a panel on, you guessed it, big tech. Uh, so it's it's been a lot of fun getting to go and do that kind of stuff. But uh, if you ever want to catch up on my musings, I always encourage people to follow me on Twitter at JamesCZ19. 
I also have a personal website at jamestronowski.com, or you can always find me through the Young Voices website too, where my work is posted there as well. So thanks for having me, Andrew. Really appreciate it. It's always a fun conversation. Yeah. And we're going to get to the one we've been wanting to do, but breaking news always gets annoyed. We're going to have this gaming conversation because there's some really important there. That's a big, you talk big tech, gaming's a huge part of big tech. People don't realize how big gaming oh, and the gaming it. culture is. But there's some really important stuff going on right now, and we're we're going to get you on. We're going to talk kind of big picture future stuff because guess what? All them that demographic everybody wants as voters, they're all gaming right now. You might want to pay attention what's going on because they're starting to get screwed over in the gaming world, which has always been their safe space. That's going to have political ramifications. We're going to have you on talk about that soon, my friend. Uh, James Arnowski, you're the best. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, today is the first round of voting as the Conservative Party over in the UK start to try to find a new leader and by default a new prime minister since Boris Johnson resigned. We've been covering it quite a lot on this program with our wonderful UK friends and contributors. Let's just go through this real quick. There are eight candidates uh, at this point. The way this works is they will do voting rounds uh, starting today and the least amount of votes that candidate will drop off until they get down to two. Once they get down to two, they'll do a six week campaign within the party for them to go around, do debates, things like this until uh, the entirety of the conservative party votes. Uh, that's going to happen in the early September. So we got a little ways to go here, but starting today, they'll do rounds of voting. The bottom vote getter drops off. So who's the candidates here? Uh, Rishi Sunak, he was the leading uh, vote getter among the MPs. Now, again, these uh, numbers will change a little bit because the entire party will select not just the MPs, but we're going to go in the order of the MP uh, vote tallies for the candidates here. Uh, Rishi Sunak, of course, his resignation, along with Savi Javid, was the one that really catalysts uh, the fall of Boris Johnson. Um, he's 42 years old. Uh, he is known for his economic policies that are not super popular within parts of the party or the populace, but we'll see how that one goes. Uh, he was the former chancellor. Uh, he's established himself as a favorite. I'm reading from Financial Times here. Thanks to first mover advantage, a slick campaign launch video, and the backing of many MPs from across the party. But his message of fiscal discipline has proved unpopular with some Tories. He's for things like tax increases, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Penny Mordaunt, um, junior trade minister, has been eyeing up the conservative leadership for years with uh, combining her pro-Brexit credentials with social liberalism, playing on her experience in the Royal Navy. She's 49 years old, has a low public profile, but is known as an effective operator among conservative MPs. Tom Tuggenhat, chair of the House Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee, has no government experience, but has found favor on the left of the conservative party with his pitch for a clean break from Johnson and his playing of military service. You remember, he's the one who gave that impassioned uh, speech in the Commons about Afghanistan when that whole thing went to hell. Uh, the 49-year-old's hopes were boosted 
with endorsements from several senior pro-Brexit figures. He's considered to be kind of like the good character candidate. Uh, Liz Trust, the foreign secretary's pitch is based on two, again, I'm reading from the Financial Times here, two key strands, a clean break with the economic policies of the Johnson government and a focus on delivery based on her five different cabinet roles. Very experienced, 46-year-old's focus on liberty and freedom imitates her heroine, Margaret Thatcher, has found a lot of favor on the right flank of the party. If you had an establishment candidate, it would probably be Liz Truss. She has some heavy hitters already on her side. Naheed Zahawi. Now, he was the guy who was placed as the chancellor for five minutes and then turned around and told Boris Johnson to resign. Uh, the newly appointed chancellor was an early favorite, but has struggled to gain momentum with due to his central role in the fall of Johnson and questions about his tax affairs. But the 55-year-old is hopeful his pitch based on economic transformation and social mobility can find favor. Uh, Kimmy Band- Bandanock, I hope I'm saying this right, uh, she's the former equalities minister as a low profile, but became the surprise outside choice thanks to her strident pitch on social issues, endorsement of the ex-leveling up secretary, Michael Gove. You remember the mess when he resigned, got fired. However, you want to parse out that story. The 42-year-old has also found a ri- wide range of support from the younger MPs of 2017-2019 intakes. Those are those mandate candidates that Boris Johnson was talking about. He has a mandate, which isn't how that works over there. Those people, those uh, new faces that really swelled the ranks of the conservative party. So having their backing is not insignificant. Jeremy Hunt, former health secretary, uh, was one of the first to declare, uh, but has struggled to gain momentum and is expected to drop out early. Uh, Swella Braverman, uh, she's the attorney general. She also got a lot of play when she called for Boris Johnson to resign, built her reputation as the former head of the European Research Group of the pro-Brexit MPs, including her pledge to withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights, but she's likely to struggle to gain support from moderate MPs. Uh, the ones who have already pulled out, uh, Savid Javid, as we already said, him along with Rishi Sunak were the two big ticket, big name resignations that really got the ball rolling on this thing. This is his third shot at trying to get uh, the conservative leadership, but he dropped out before the first ballot. Remy Christie uh, also withdrew before the first ballot. Pretty Patel, who a lot of people thought would make a harder push. A uh, lot of inter-party politics there. She has not had a good run in the press the last few weeks uh, and months, frankly. Uh, she decided not to take a bid for leadership after all. And then Grant Shapps, uh, who dropped out of the race on July 12th, and endorse Sunak. So that's what's going on over in England. Keep an eye on this first round of voting today. They'll get rid of the lowest vote tally person, and they'll continue on until there is only two, and then there can be only one. We'll keep following it right here on Hurtel. More after this. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Let's go to Pontiac, Michigan for our feel-good closing segment. We always try to do something uplifting at the end of the program. Uh, this is from WXYZ.com. That's uh, Detroit ABC7. Uh, when local kids are struggling with food insecurities, Forgotten Harvest is there as a reliable source in the community, providing meals to those who need it most. We get in the neighborhoods where there would be no food if we didn't bring it to them, and we can't do it without the help of our donors, said uh, Marguerite Kaiser, food program supervisor with Forgotten Harvest. The summer lunch program through Forgotten Harvest provides free balanced meals to Metro Detroit children, helping to bridge the gap after kids lose access to the school subsidized programs during the school year. When summer comes, it's very challenging for them to get a nutritious meal. So when you come out to a place like this and you see them at there, at least they're getting a meal. It's very rewarding. There's photos here. They're using like a picnic shelter at a park type situation. And there's all the kids there. Uh, Murphy Park in Pontiac is just one of 20 sites this year where summer lunches are being distributed. It's the last leg in the journey after the food is packed by the volunteers. Through the donations of both individuals and corporations, we're able to come to places like Murphy Park and provide lunch to at-risk kids that otherwise may not get a meal, Kaiser said. For Garden Harvest works with partners like the nonprofit Take One Community Pro- Program and the city of Pontiac to make it all happen. We're the organization. We connect the dots. I appreciate everything that Forgotten Harvest does, and they need better support from throughout the community because they feed a lot of people. And without them, a lot of people would be forgotten, but they don't forget. Uh, Johans Bold, CEO of Take One Community Program, said, on average, Forgotten Harvest says they provide about 100,000 lunches to more than 20,000 kids throughout the metro Detroit Every summer, the impact is far and wide. The program that Forgotten Harvest runs is critical importance to our community's young people. Pontiac Mayor Tim Greenwell said, Portia Fields Anderson, the program coordinator for the city of Pontiac, says many people come together to help positively impact local children's life. It takes a full community. And the whole thing about it takes a village. Be part of that village, Fields Anderson said. If you want information on this program, the links will be in the show notes. Uh, this has been good to see people do this. They had trouble during COVID with this. I know some states like my native West Virginia, they're actually running school meals on school buses, trying to get them out to kids during the quarantine days. Good to see folks are doing this, uh, important program. Good for our community doing it. That'll do it for Hertel today. Uh, make sure you reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you at Hertel show on gmail.com at Hertel show on the Twitter. Love to hear from you. We're going to be back tomorrow, continuing to turn the noise of the news cycle down more great guests more information, still no hollering and still no caterwauling. No matter how bad it gets out there, we're going to keep our bearings. So until we talk to you again, we hope you're well, we hope you're well-fed, and we'll talk to you tomorrow for more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Somos la máquina.